Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, hey there, friend. Sorry I'm a little late tonight. I'm a very religious person when it comes to St. Patrick's Day, you understand. So I start worshiping pretty early. Uh, A few prayers with breakfast, a few more prayers with lunch, and you get the idea. Anyway, sometimes you need a nap after all that worshiping. It's a small price to pay for St. Patrick's blessings. Oh, look at Chester. Hey, I like your little green hat, buddy. You been worshiping a little yourself? And back in the drink he goes. Come on in, friend. Hmm. That's better. <laughs> hey, um, let me tell you about this holiday. Uh, being Irish myself, or of Irish descent, you could say, I can speak with authority on the subject. You see, St. Patrick was a 5th century Romano-British Christian missionary, and he was also a bishop in Ireland. Well... What he would do every March 17th is squirt green food coloring into his beer, you understand. Get really drunk and have fistfights with his brothers. <sighs> then, of course, he'd sneak out of the party without saying goodbye. <sighs> he loved that shipping up to Boston song. You know, where the guy lost his leg? I heard it was his ringtone and everything. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> Got that microphone, man. Smoke them if you got them and drink your glass to the bottom. Because true old blood has a tale to tell. But first, a word from our sponsors. You are listening to the standard edition of this program. You will go to simplyscarypodcast.com and you will sign up as a patron. You will get instant access to our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Is that understood? Sir, yes, sir! Bullshit! I can't hear you! Sir, yes, sir! What's your name, scumbag? Sir, Jeff Sturdivin, sir. Bullshit! From now on, you're Private Q-Ball. Do you like that name? Sir, no, sir. What the fuck did you just say? I mean, sir, yes, sir. Yes, no. Shut up, or I will kill you. I will physically kill you. Is that understood, Private Q-Ball? Sir, yes, sir. I'll be watching you, Q-Ball. Oh, 
boy, he's scary, huh? And we're off. Ha! Our first tale tonight is a peek behind the curtain of the creepypasta business, written by Teddy Dog. Teddy Dog. Teddy Dog. Chili Dog. Uh, you might recognize him from our YouTube community. You might also recognize a couple of the characters in this story. So, without further delay, I give you Amateur Rivalries. I'd like to keep my name private, but many creepypasta listeners may recognize my pen name, Grin in the Dark, which I lifted from a novel by my favorite author, Ramsey Campbell. I'm not a professional writer by any means, but I've had remarkable luck in getting many of my stories read by some of the more popular narrators of the genre. Many kind words were spoken of me, and I replied with what tried to be great wit, aided by a wide vocabulary. I watched as many new channels as I could afford and offered praise and encouragement and tried never to overlook an opportunity to amuse. Their gratitude when they were the first recipient of a new grin-in-the-dark confection tended to fill me with embarrassment and shame. I wore a tissue-thin, smiling public facade I felt sure any moron could penetrate. The truth is I suffer from a disease called clinical depression which has made my personal life as circumscribed as a prison cell. Any genuine friends I may have once had were alienated long ago. And women? Well, what a catch. A depressed middle-aged man that lives on a miserly disability pension and hates the whole damned human race, including himself, mixed with not one or two, but a whopping four suicide attempts to his credit. In addition... I come with the guaranteed assurance my disease will deteriorate over time and I will be impossible to either live with or to love. Psychiatry had given up on me a lifetime ago and fobbed me off with pills. The state-mandated electroshock therapy added a new dimension to my stunted personality. I was now subject to bright flashes of red, which were of breathtaking depth and beauty. However, they were accompanied by a cyclone of murderous anger, whirling as widely as the sky around a thick frozen core which seemed to control the entire tempest. Controlled yet rabid hatred and rage followed by two weeks of unbearable remorse that I had not hurt or killed somebody during my seizure, or my possession as I prefer to call it. I wept at the absence of blood on my hands. I'm not sure if this new dimension to my nature is an improvement or not. I'm depressed, so I don't really care. I knew I lived a planet removed from any other human being, which was even more for me to ignore. While I was recovering from the electroshock, my sides would cramp, and I would scream at a sensation of being sliced in two with blades slashing into my sides. I experienced a true starvation. What it was I starved for was pain, revenge, and slaughtered human meat. Fortunately, these episodes were brief, and no harm worthy of mention came to anyone as a result. With the exception of creepy pasta, I had no life outside my apartment, and to me it felt like a safe harbor. Kindness and decency are the minimum requirements for acceptance among creeps. I can approximate both. 
Friends were easy to make and keep, and no ugly feuds between celebrity phonies troubled the mood. Best of all, they accepted most of my stories fairly often, though I typically believed many were accepted out of pity and friendship rather than any merit the stories actually had. Since I have no life, where do I get off creating stories about it? My mother was the other portion of my life. She lived 20 minutes away in her own small apartment. We were good friends who loved each other for my entire life, but she never mourned not becoming a grandmother. She understood I was too crippled inside to provide that to her and accepted it with grace. She was in her final years, clearly, and visiting her brought us both happiness. As for my father, he passed his genetic inheritance on to me, and childhood memories of him are few. There's just a single moment of one day. I see the rope around his neck and the kitchen table turned on its side. Mom was now in her early 90s and the deterioration of her mind had grown impossible to ignore. The apartment had become filthy and my mother had begun to repeat herself constantly and age began to mark her face. This was the long goodbye and I was the end of our line. The most recent time I had been at her home, I saw an old beat-up used car, special blue Toyota with California plates parked in my mother's well-populated cul-de-sac, and I thought no more of it apart from a fleeting reflection that I hoped I would be there when it tumbled into the abyss. I returned from my mother's house and went directly to my creepy world as always, and soon froze in place as I began to read. Every credit with my name on it was attacked and in visceral terms. I was horrified to read the epithets Mama Boy and Taunts of Mama's House for Dinner and Can't Get It Up, though there I felt they were just guessing. The name attached to this oil slick of commentary was Tara Reed's. Within a day, the comments were removed with profuse apologies which were both expected and accepted. But this had just finished when a new tsunami came in that ripped across the comment sections. All were focused on what a shitty writer I was. The ultimate fraud and poser, whereas people like her, just as a for instance, could write honestly about life in the real world. I've always found those who prattle on about how real they are to be full of shit, but then I don't mix much. I didn't even know what real life is all about, she declared. She got that right, I guess. A half day of stopping these attacks passed only to have them resume almost immediately. I understood all hands were on deck in Creep World and they were doing all they could, but it was a day of misery nonetheless. And the only way to bore this bore from our midst we did by discussing the upcoming creep con in a beautiful hotel just one state away. How much voice talent would be there? It seemed like dozens were planning to stop by at some point. They're as damaged as me, I thought, as I contemplated my own anxiety in the proximity of other human beings. Fortunately, Tara Reed's lost interest here. Lee stopped posting. These people were different. These were creeps and horror fans whose names I knew and the kindest, most tolerant group imaginable. I would go to the convention. I would give experiencing and enjoying life another shot. The big night came, and I was there clutching my ticket like a life raft. 
I stamped on my grin name tag and fled the lobby which was too bright and loud and followed the arrow to the ballroom where the door swung open. This would be the chill-out room during the convention and served its purpose well. No sooner had I entered I heard laughter beside me and an unmistakable voice good-naturedly say, Hey, it's you, grinning the dock. How you doing, man? I turned and greeted the professor, whose British accent was silky and smooth, and who wore a friendly grin with amused, possibly stoned eyes. For some reason he wore a Gilligan hat hitched back on his head, younger than me but not by much generationally speaking. More significantly, he was probably the most recognized of all the narrators, but was talking to me like he had no place better to be. I asked if he liked my latest submission, and he laughed and said, <laughs> What? You mean the one where the little demon baby explodes up through the landlord's asshole? Almost puked. Thanks for that, brother. You are a serious danger to yourself and to others. You know that, right? Yes, I'm narrating that one. And hey, he said, taking on a concerned and sympathetic expression, I saw some of that shit you went through last week, and I sympathize, trust me. That same woman dogged me throughout my early years. She wanted to be a writer, but... Here he scoffed, humorlessly. Her stories are all identical. They all styled her, he said, ticking off his thumb. And a complete stranger she's torturing to death for no particular reason, except to come up with new ways to torture people, ticking off his index finger. She genuinely is sick. And you can believe I was on a plane the same night I discovered she knew my home address. However, he pointed out slyly, the professor is a hard man to track, as well as expensive. He winked conspiratorially. Whoa, he said. Rising suddenly, this is the man you want to talk to. He called over a tall and neatly dressed man whose channel was new but good and very promising. We shook hands and he said, Yeah, she's dangerous. After I wouldn't read one of her stupid stories, she actually started stalking my family and threatening my kids. It ended with the cops chasing her off into the wilderness in January. She's dead for sure, I thought. We all did. Cops, everyone. Then I read the things she was saying about you. It's her most definitely. It's no copycat. <laughs> Suddenly the air was split with thunder in the form of a human voice with a thick Texas twang, and even I had to smile ear to ear. It was Tyrannosaurus Tex, teller of some of the most hilarious stories I had ever heard in my life. Well, paint my ass pink and call me Janet. It's His Holiness the Professor himself and... He squinted at my name tag, resplendent in his ten-gallon hat, ZZ top beard, and boots that went jingle-jangle. Grin in the dark, he erupted with recognition. Put her there, friend, he said, and shook my hand with such vigor I felt I was aboard a ship in stormy seas. I just want to say what an honor it is, friend, and go fuck yourself. <laughs> if he could do that, why would he be here with us? The professor asked. I, for one, would never leave the house. We were just sharing Tara Reed's horror stories. It seems our friend is the latest target of her wrath. No joke, man. Tread carefully. With his face taking on a look of great solemnity, Tex said, Well, that is sage advice, friend. I can only assume you showed him who specifically to be on the lookout for, right? 
Why, I feel impotent just asking such a thing. That's impudent, Shakespeare, the professor said as his brow furrowed and he began scrolling through his phone. I've got a whole file on her here somewhere. Friends close and enemies closer and all that. Ah, here we go. If you see this face heading your way, run. He handed his ludicrously complicated device to me, and I squinted then slowly sat as my legs began to tremble. I knew this face, and what a disagreeable one it was. It was a woman who looked all of ten, but was, according to the mugshot, about thirty. Puffy, squinted eyes glared back at me, and inwardly sloping ferret-like teeth showed between her pursed lips. She managed to look arrogant, insulted, and furtive all at the same time. Eventually, Tara Reeds was an alias for Agnes Peterbottom, and no wonder. What a dumb name, I muttered unaware I'd spoken aloud. Keep reading, the professor advised. There's some scary shit in there. And so there was... The professor had clearly hired a very thorough private investigator who had opened an entire barrel of worms. She'd been arrested, jailed, released, escaped, institutionalized for things like assault and intent to kill, endangering the welfare of a child, numerous illegal firearm charges. In one instance, she'd been caught sawing through the steering rod of a magazine publisher's car, for which she received a whole two years probation. My eyes bulged and my jaw dropped as I read on. Tex advising the professor on the therapeutic benefits of rinsing the sand out of his vagina faded to a low murmur as I read how she had begun her inglorious career as a nurse in psychiatric hospitals all over the Northeast. And in my jumbled hallucinatory way, I remembered. I was in the enclosed wing of a psych ward outside Boston, painful surgical staples keeping the canals I'd gashed into my arms shut. The pain had been excruciating, keeping me awake one night, so I rose from my narrow bed and ambled down the dark hallway like a zombie. Just one room was brightly lit, and it drew me like a moth. I stared numbly as the tiniest nurse on earth stood at the foot of the bed of a patient who appeared comatose. Holding his IV in one hand, she pulled a vial of white powder from a purse slung over her shoulder. My dry mouth found its voice and I began to howl for help, frantically slapping at the alert button on the pendant around my neck. I heard stampeding feet approach as the piggy eyes and purse sneering mouth of the nurse whipped to face me and so help me God she growled and gnashed her teeth at me. Soon orderlies poured in and I was hustled back to my room. About twenty minutes later, as I told the head nurse what I had seen, an air raid siren which slowly transformed into a voice which rattled my feelings filled the air, shrieking mad threats and choruses that reached a crescendo when it arrived at my room. You! The awful instrument grated. I will destroy your whole world. Do you hear me, you freak? I will destroy your world. I refused to turn my head, in no mood to look into such malignancy and spite again. Dazed, I read on. Agnes Peterbottom worked at several psychiatric hospitals in the New England area and was dismissed when a sharp spike in patient deaths were shown to coincide with her period of employment, though no formal charges. 
It was exactly then my own phone began to ring in a loud, unfamiliar tone. I yanked it from my pocket, and black tendrils of smoke drifted up behind my eyes, and I felt icy steel swelling up throughout my core. Emergency police communication. Respond immediately, my screen read. Next, I was outside my mother's house being told by someone that it had been easily entered and she'd been taken by complete surprise. Not hard to do to a partially deaf 93-year-old woman. Though she was frail and elderly, her killer had strapped my mother to the bed, tight, blood-constricted knots strapping her arthritic arms above her head. For nearly two hours, the killer had inflicted terrible tortures on her until at last my mother's aged heart stopped in shock, freeing her from the nightmare smashing down the walls of her confused, innocent mind. The ice blooming within me asked, why do this on a day when for the first time in years a room full of people can alibi you? Answer, she doesn't want me locked up in a cell as a suspect. She wants me to herself, that's fine. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The wall of swirling red rose behind my eyes. My mind roared with multiple voices demanding violence and death and blood and starving voices wailed behind them in the urgency of their hunger. Did my mother have any enemies? The police asked me. No, I said. Did I? They asked. No, I said. After the funeral, I vanished, but not before entering my home to pack a few things. I unlocked the dust-encrusted basement window. Then I shopped for tools. Behind my house is a ragged grassy hill leading into spindly and widely spaced trees which give way to denser forests and thick towering trees with a canopy that leaves the forest dimly illuminated, even on the sunniest day. As one who lives his life alone, I've wandered these forests which stretch to the horizon in every direction and know them well for miles around. It was in the first clearing that I pitched camp and began to saw a ten-foot length of wood. Did I mention I live in northern New Hampshire? Lumber products of every length and width and I chose carefully. When night fell, I pulled on some rubber gloves and placed a terrarium I'd purchased in the center of the clearing. Then flashlight in hand, I began checking under rocks. 
I did this until the light gray of dawn appeared through the narrow gaps and branches, and my once empty terrarium was teeming with frantic, agitated life. I pitched camp and slept the sleep of the just and the dead. I let her see me. I knew true to form Tara Reed's AKA Peter Bottom would make camp in my home and strike when the moment was right. I would offer her no such moment. I had now been away nearly four days and she had begun to sweat. She had left her car, a beat up blue Toyota with California plates, wouldn't you know, at a campground two miles down the road from my home which she slithered into when she discovered the deliberately unlocked basement window. But by day number three of haunting an empty house, she was really starting to crack. I watched, well hidden, at a strangely tiny head bobbing indiscreetly up and down in my windows. On day four, I let her see me. When her head bobbing routine began, I dashed across her line of sight, ducking behind one tree, then another, putting on a show of being stealthy and furtive. Then I beat a hasty retreat into the woods. There are basically two trails which lead into the deeper woods. One, I made sure to block with enough loose shrubbery to render it invisible. Of necessity, she'd have to follow the path where I sat motionless behind the knoll surrendering my mind to gorgeous towering walls of roiling red flame. I had become like a golem, a creature of Jewish myth made of clay from unsanctified graveyards where murderers lay and are then animated by black sorcery and sent into the world to kill. It is their sole reason for existing, and they are indestructible. Reduce them to dust, and that dust will reconstitute back into the golem. I was both dead inside and consumed with the imperative to kill and kill and kill, and I felt the kinship. I did not have to wait long. She entered the clearing, making all the racket a human in unfamiliar forest makes. She was entirely unprepared for my body leaping from my hiding place, crushing her tiny body to mine as my free hand dug a taser viciously against her neck. She spasmed in my arm as I shocked and shocked her again until she collapsed onto the ground unconscious. I looked down on her tiny body, which looked just like a child's from behind. With all the mad and ravenous voices baying with bloodthirsty approval, the quality of mercy had long ago turned to ash inside me. The twit had a butcher's knife slid into her belt to hunt me with. I pulled it free and slashed all her clothes from her body, taking great care to be as careless as possible jabbing and slicing her flesh as I cut the clothes away. On her back, it became obvious this was no child. Her fluttering eyes remained just as mean and piggy as I recalled. Her small, pouty mouth filled with tiny, pointed-looking teeth sneered up at me, but sheer terror was far more in evidence. She looked like a foul-tempered rodent that was slowly regaining its senses. I accelerated the process by pulling a heavy steel mallet from my own belt and smashing it down on each of her kneecaps until I heard a slow, ugly cracking noise. She let out a loud, sustained howl, and her eyes rolled up in her head. 
I watched vomit splutter up over her lips. She gagged and coughed on the rest as I gripped her short blonde hair and dragged her bloody naked body into the clearing where I bound her wrist tightly in a loop of leather, which cinched tight as I pulled the rope attached to it, hitched it over a tree branch, and slowly lifted her to her toes. She was awake now, and I heard her shrill nasal voice begin to taunt me. Was this the way I got my kicks? Could I only get it up by tying up injured naked girls in the woods? God, I was so pathetic, etc., and what have you. I was stiff as a truncheon, sure, but not for the reason she imagined. I had no James Bond villain speeches to make. I only spoke five words to her the entire time. Are you afraid of spiders? I asked while pulling my rubber gloves on and reaching behind the stone which concealed my terrarium. The answer was apparently yes. Her eyes bulged so widely I wouldn't be surprised if they'd popped. The cage was half filled with wolf spiders which thrive in New England forests in autumn, which this conveniently was. They are as large and ferocious as their name suggests. I found many as large as my palm. The females were even larger than that. Their young traveled on their abdomens until they were large enough to devour their mother. The color of the wolf spiders covered the full spectrum of dark brown to pitch black. I had enough to grab them by the fistful and fling them onto her body one fistful after another. The enraged creatures fanned out across her, over her breast and upper neck, and onward into her hair. One even found a home splayed across her sneering, pouting lips. It would seem I had captured myself a dedicated arachnophobe. She swung and thrashed and wept and even prayed. After seeing my mother's lidless eyes staring cloudy and dead at her bedroom ceiling, I couldn't imagine divine intervention for Tara Reed's being imminent. Her thrashing only served to further agitate her coating of massive spiders, which retaliated by diving their bone-hard pinchers into her flesh and dangling from her body like strange fruit. I returned to the rope and untied and pulled this wicked crone in a child's body about ten feet into the air, secured her, and walked behind a large oak. Her now rasping screams and the pitter-patter of spiders which lost their grip on her and fell to the earth were the only sounds I heard. Before my depression fully consumed me, I'd shown an aptitude for carpentry and tried to be a productive member of society by practicing it. That idea quickly died as my inability to get out of bed on many days stymied it. But I stayed with it as a hobby. Like my stories, it had kept my mind from consuming itself by focusing on something beyond my inner darkness. For even a mediocre carpenter, it's an easy matter to carve a pedestal and a sharpened stake to fasten on top of it. And this was what I had carried from behind the oak and placed carefully below Paige Turner. I untied her rope and slowly lowered her body, which remained blanketed with scuttling, biting spiders onto the very sharpest point I could carve. By now her screams had shredded her vocal cords and she scarcely sighed as the wooden spike slid into her from behind and slowly, 
with a wet, ripping sound stabbing its way through her belly. Untying her and letting her stand on her own, I observed with satisfaction that the spike truly seemed to have not punctured any vital organs, meaning she could dangle there for hours or even days before infection, shock, exposure, or even spider bites killed her. To her, it would seem far longer. I was satisfied. I was calm. The clamor and flames licking my brain had vanished, and for once I felt easy in my own skin. It was a restrained euphoria, but euphoria nonetheless. Slowly walking back to my home, Tara Reed's impaled and forgotten behind me, I plotted my future. I knew my depression would be back, but I also knew these woods. I knew where people hiked and camped. I knew dune buggy trails where teenagers would go to party and fuck. And I had plenty of lumber and plenty of rope. If I was focused and methodical, I could keep what Churchill called the black dog of depression at bay. My deeds could be legend in these here hills. I would live on beyond my death after all and I would never ever lack inspiration for my multitude of creepy friends. I smiled. Damn, it's good to be alive. And, <laughs> oh. And that was Amateur Rivalries by Teddy Dog. A good reminder to be wary of people with clever puns for names. <laughs> oh, um, in any case, the last thing guys like me need is for writers to start killing each other, even if it does make for a good story. Let's keep it amiable, you lunatics. A little about the author. Teddy Dog is a resident of the friendliest goddamn city in the United States, Boston, Massachusetts, where he occupies the majority of his time listening to and reading horror stories. He's not shy about providing their authors and performers with his abundance of insights and opinions of which he has millions. He is the author of the almost entirely fictional Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which remains unpublished because it's utterly ludicrous and available on request. On the side, he enjoys working in senior care and ignoring the disgusting state of his apartment. He considers British author Ramsay Campbell his main influence, which is pretty damn pretentious if you think about it. Indeed, Teddy, and I agree the arched doorways of ancient Rome most definitely inspired those of the modern igloo. <laughs> For our second tale of questionable health care providers, we joined Jimmy, who signed on to a big clinical trial for a little easy money. Only there's no such thing as easy money. From author Kieran F. West, I give you clinical. After lunch, I went back into my living quarters and drew a triangle. Between each corner of the triangle, I wrote our names out. I was at the top of the triangle. On the bottom two corners, I wrote Rosie and Kenneth. 
Rosie and Kenneth hated each other. I liked Rosie, but I didn't like Kenneth. Kenneth liked me, but hated Rosie. The word hate was written at the bottom of the triangle. The word hate rang out in my mind. Hate being such a stronger word than like. Like, at the same time, being so timid in comparison to hate. Love was too extreme for two people I had known for two weeks, but like was so tame next to hate that it almost didn't belong. Lunch was preceded by a jab in the arm, a new trial vaccination. We don't even know what the vaccination is for, and any time we ask the question, the answers are so dense and conflated that we wished we'd never asked. I share my living quarters with Rosie and Kenneth, now that a triangle of like and hate has been formed, there's a bipolar atmosphere of intense melancholia. But we all agreed on one thing, hating the staff at the facility. The facility is reminiscent of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Think 20 nurse ratchets in a small test center, all of us walking around in white gowns like fucking morons. At the same time, nobody is insane. Nobody's been committed. We're all here on our own volition. I look back at the paper and hand-drawn wonky triangle that I made. I write on the line beneath the word hate. Hate is a mirror onto ourselves. I hate Kenneth because he reminds me of all the things that I hate about myself. He's loud, he's greedy, he's selfish, he's a narcissist, and he's obnoxious. On the next line, I write, Fuck your $10,000. I look long and hard at my chaotic ramblings. Then I screw up the piece of paper and eat it. The paper's jagged edges hit against the back of my throat. The paper slides down my esophagus covered in a digestive ooze. At dinner, Kenneth has a chessboard lined up next to his plate. He wants to play. I barely know the rules. Kenneth slaps my hand every time I try to leapfrog another piece the way you do in checkers. This irritates me to no end. Kenneth gets more and more frustrated at trying to teach me how to play the game until he eventually loses his rag and throws his queen against the floor. The queen bounces back up against the hard floor. I eat my hamburger. The nurses stare at us enthusiastically, urging us to eat up. I feel like I'm in an orphanage. Nurse Wimslow approaches with a ready-prepared syringe. She stares down at Kenneth. Time for your jab, she says. She pokes Kenneth in the arm and dabs at the piercing with damp cotton. Kenneth is calmed down after his jab. The game of chess is no longer bothering him. Seeing Kenneth's dopey, insolent post-jab face in the common fog winds me up more than when he's his usual obnoxious, loud-mouthed, pea-brained self. Fuck your jab! I say, and I slam my plate against the table and storm back to our room. I've been irritated all day today. The last thing I want is a post-dinner jab. An hour later, Nurse Peacock is at the foot of my bed. Now, Jimmy, you know that if you refuse a single jab, you don't get paid for any of this. It makes all the previous jabs a waste of your time. Ten thousand dollars is a lot to walk away from. I remind myself why I'm doing this stupid trial. We can discharge you today if you like, she says. And we can write you a check for your travel expenses. I pull my sleeve up and offer my arm. She puts the jab right between the eyes of the tiger tattoo I got when I was 17. 
She dabs it with cotton gently. I like the cold feel of wet cotton. My arm's been jabbed so many times that there's big pockmarks forming, making the tattooed tiger resemble a Hindu god. I could never get a good night's rest here, and my dreams are more vivid and hallucinatory than I ever remember having in my life. Last night, I dreamed I was the queen bee in a thriving hive. Other bees would swarm around me and drip nectar down my throat until I fattened up to the point of combustion. When I finally burst open, about a million tiny scorpions sprawled out from my bee-like innards. The scorpions then descended upon and ate my army of servile bees. It was a massacre. Anything bee-like had been devoured and devastated. When I awoke, I pulled the sheets back and half expected my legs to be a mesh of scorpion bites and bee stings. When I was a child, just starting secondary, one of the local kids from my area took a live kitten between his palms and crushed its skull for all our benefit. Blood and brain matter oozed out of the cat's ear hole. It was the most disgusting sight I'd ever seen. The boy went on to a juvenile center for animal cruelty. I think he's dead now. I forget his name. The image of this is now haunting me inside my own head. It happened 21 years ago. I've barely thought about it since it happened, but the amount of inactivity at the facility has caused my brain to regress into an obsessive thought process. I can't stop thinking about the dead cat, the squeeze and pop of its skull and the brain seeping out of its ear hole. I tell Kenneth about my dream and he just stares at me in a blank dozy gaze which pisses me off. I tell him the cat story. He shrugs it off, raises two fat bushy eyebrows quickly, and then goes back to his game of Mahjong Solitaire. He then tells me that he slept with over a hundred women and that two weeks without sex has given him blue balls. We're just not on the same page. Rosie fulfills my emotional needs. She listens to me. I tell her about my dreams. I tell her about the cat's skull and the brain seeping out of the cat's ear. She gives me the acknowledgement I desperately crave, at least by listening alone. They're giving us psychotropics. The things you're describing are visions, Rosie says. They're making me sick, I say. If you're feeling so disturbed right now, you should just leave. I can't. I need the money. Do you need the money that much? I need to buy a house, I say. I haven't asked her why she's doing the clinical trials. I tell her that I'd do almost anything right now for a house. Anything besides hard work, dedication, responsibility, and financial frugality, which means a clinical trial. <laughs> she laughs. The ignition in her eye between laughs reminds me of why I like Rosie. I show her my pockmarked arm, the result of the constant jabs. You shouldn't worry about your arm, Rosie says. Why? The hallucinogens aren't in the injection going into your arm. They're in the food. Rosie lifts up her shirt and proceeds to tell me that she's lost 12 pounds just this week. The jabs are a placebo. It's in the food. Her rib cage is trying to force its way out of her stomach. The shape of it reminds me of the scorpions bursting through the stomach of the queen bee. I was the queen bee. Nurse Peacock has started watching me with intent and shrewd eyes. She's noticed me cutting down drastically on the food they serve. 
She noticed when I passed three-quarters of my plate to Kenneth. Kenneth, on the other hand, cannot stop eating. A gluttonous parasite has forced its way into him. As he eats my burger, the corners of his mouth are dripping with cow fat and mayonnaise. He doesn't wipe his mouth. He sat there for 15 minutes with goo running down the corners of his mouth. The repulsion staves off my hunger, at least. I look across the canteen, through the crowds of white-gowned trialists scarfing on their burgers, dipping their chips in ketchup. I focus on Nurse Peacock. She's staring. She's staring. She's staring. She's staring. Her eyes narrow to the size of two miniaturized demonic pearls. Her eyes frighten me. Why are they giving us LSD? I ask Rosie. Who said it was LSD? Rosie says. What's the point of all this? I ask. Rosie tells me we're in some kind of milgram experiment. The aim isn't to vaccinate or create drugs like the advert said. The aim is to see how low the depths of our human psyche can go with forced intoxication and an ugly atmosphere. As Rosie tells me this, there's a ferocity and pain within her eyes. I really think she needs to eat. You said something to me about discharging, I said. Why don't you? I asked, she said. And? They tell me that I need a double dose that evening. Kenneth is playing poker by himself, raising bets and throwing down poker chips trying to out-bluff himself. Rosie lies on the bed. She's semi-catatonic. A paperback book is sprawled on her stomach, but she can barely muster the energy to pick it up, let alone read it. Her eyes are closed, but her breath has the nimble sprite of being awake. She succumbed to that half-dream, half-awake dead zone. Nurse Flynn rolls up my sleeve and pricks me twice with the same needle. She doesn't sterilize before, during, or after the jabs. I'm asleep within about two minutes of the jabs. This time, I dream that I'm standing at the shoreline holding an egg. A rusty brown, corroded spoon is in my hand. I crack the top of the egg and peer inside. The inside of the egg contains an eye. An all-seeing, pervasive, haunting human eye. The waves rise up and crash into the shore. The water takes me, the egg, and the eye with it into the sea. I wait to see Kenneth sitting at the end of the bed. He's banging a ping-pong bat against a ball tied to a string. It's time for group therapy, Kenneth says. Dr. Jurgen sits facing out towards us three. Rosie, Kenneth, and I sit in a semicircle encompassing him. Rosie is drained of all color and vibrancy. I remember that day I first saw her. Her hair was in bangs. She walked with a confident beatnik flair. Now she's sickly white. She's skinny and gaunt. She's dry. Her skin makes me thirsty just by looking at the cracked dehydration. Kenneth and I had to carry her into the therapy suite and throw her down on the chair. Kenneth is the opposite to Rosie. He's fattened up, plump and ripe. His cheeks are bright red and he's breaking out into damp sweats. I imagine I must be somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. Kenneth is working on a Rubik's Cube. That is, until Dr. Jurgen gives a low, delicate cough. 
A small plea for Kenneth's attention. Kenneth looks up at Dr. Jurgen. This is merely a formality of the experimentation to see how your living arrangements are going and to see how you're responding to the treatment, Dr. Jurgen says. We tick the boxes and keep the insurance companies happy. Rosie's head slumps onto her own shoulder and a line of saliva from her lip to the shoulder descends and drops. Dr. Jurgen doesn't even react to it. He's got a clipboard and a pen behind his ear. Jurgen is a purebred stereotype of a doctor. Kenneth starts. He makes it all about him again. He blathers on for ten minutes, telling Dr. Jurgen about the isolation he feels from the group and that Rosie and I are purposely shunning him like we're on an Amish farm. One look at the half-dead Rosie and you'd realize there isn't much of a group to be isolated from. He compares the isolation to his experiences in secondary school. And by the end of his monologue, he's weeping into his hands and bemoaning how he's never been taken seriously his entire life. His eyes are red and he's smearing his palm into his eyeballs to wipe away the tears, mixing it with the sweat. Before Dr. Jurgen can turn to me to ask me if I have any rebuttal or response to Kenneth's biographic tragedy, Kenneth is interrupting again and again. Dr. Jurgen can barely get a flow going, so he just gives up. Kenneth tells me and Dr. Jurgen and Rosie for what it's worth that this isn't worth the ten grand and that the whole clinical trial is just one long line of poor choices and mistakes. We finish up with Dr. Jurgen asking me how I'm feeling at the moment. Well, that fucking nurse keeps watching me, I say. Rosie's head lolls over and her body follows. She falls off her chair and lands face down onto the carpet. I tried not eating, but I just can't do it. The grotesque images and imaginings were weaker when I stopped eating, but my empty stomach was rotting away, and the hunger pains would cascade throughout my entire body right up into my fingertips. So, I eat. Not with the gusto I had when I first arrived here. I eat in small, delicate increments, just enough to keep me alive, and once I eat, the images and sights come back immediately. I've now started dreaming about Nurse Peacock's eyes, her eyes shining, a strobe light pulsing in vulgar flashes of green and blue, piercing through me at every turn and every junction within this clinic. Those eyes pervade my dreams, shining through the distorted static of my television screen as though I'm back in my Texas home. I wake in the night, and through the glass windows of the bedroom door, I see Nurse Peacock in the hallway peering into my room. Those eyes fill me with torment and, and terror. When I close my own eyes, I see the brains of that cat seeping out of its ear. I'm haunted by images of gore and permeation. Kenneth and I return to our room after dinner, and Rosie is laid out across the bed with a drip feed next to her. Nurse Peacock is standing over Rosie and toying around with the wires and entry ports. She flicks one of the tubes with a delicate middle finger in a gesture of pure cinematic cliché. Nurse Fallon barges past me, carting another IVF and tutting to herself. 
She pulls the wires out from the IVF stand and looks bemused as to where to even begin. Nurse Peacock grabs the IVFs from her immediately. Poor thing, poor thing, poor thing. Nurse Fallon is muttering. I walk up to the side of Rosie and gently touch her hand. She turns to me, and with a fear and revulsion deep in her eyes, she can barely say the words, but she manages. You can't discharge. It's clear to me that her death is imminent. Nurse Peacock walks over to me and shoes me away. Come on, away from here. Let her be, Nurse Peacock says. It's just a clinical trial, I say. This shouldn't be happening. It's nothing to do with the trial. The girl isn't eaten. That's her choice. Now get the hell away. Her eyes narrow and the ambulance beam a vicious purple. I back off and walk over to my bunk. Kenneth is sat on my bed, clumsily flinging a yo-yo back and forth in ugly strides. Anything happens to Rosie, we can all sue for witnessing it, Kenneth says. It'll be emotional trauma. Can get more than just that 10000 I know a lawyer. If she dies, let's sue the clinic. The 10000 That fucking 10000 I spotted the advertisement for the clinical trials online on Gumtree. My girlfriend had just left me. I was 38, and we were still renting a squalor of an apartment in East Dallas. We'd been renting that place for 16 years. I'd worked the same job for 12 years, on the same wage for 9 years. She'd gotten sick of my lack of backbone. I knew that if I got the deposit for a mortgage, I could win her back and finally have a place I could call my own. It was supposed to be easy. It was supposed to be one month of testing out a vaccine for $10,000. Now I'm witnessing one of my roommates dying. I'm plagued with bad dreams and the nurses are watching my every fucking move. I wake in the night and crawl over to Rosie's bed. Why can't you discharge from here? I ask. The thought of her saying this was keeping me awake. She didn't respond. I lifted up her arm. I looked into her face. Her mouth is open. Her eyes are open. She's dead. Rosie is dead. She starved herself to death. I crawled back into bed and pulled the covers back over myself. I don't call for help. I can't call for help. Ten thousand dollars. Nurse Peacock stands over me. My eyes are shuddering open slowly into wakefulness. Peacock's eyes immediately perforate into my inner sanctimony. First fucking thing I see are those eyes. Last thing at night and first thing in the morning. Nurse Peacock is smiling. She has an ugly and crooked smile. I'm afraid we've had to discharge that lovely young lady you share the room with. The clinical trials just weren't for her, and she wasn't feeling well. She will, of course, not get paid now. I have nothing to say to Nurse Peacock, nor does she expect me to. She just walks away. She knows that I know that Rosie is dead. I don't think I have the courage to even challenge her. 
Nurse Peacock walks out of the room. Kenneth doesn't seem too perturbed. He hated Rosie anyway. Kenneth's fingers are stuck in a Chinese finger trap and he's finding ways to escape. He brings his fingers together, apart, together, apart again. He starts talking about lawyers again. I pull out another piece of paper. I draw another triangle. At the top edge, I write Nurse Peacock. Under the bottom two edges, I write Kenneth and Jimmy. I frantically write, hate, 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 all over the page. What's that there? Kenneth asks. I screw the paper up, chuck it in my mouth, and swallow it. Kenneth's curiosity dies and he goes back to his Chinese finger trap. I stare over at the doorway. Two purple eyes hover around it. I see nothing else but the invading eyes of Nurse Peacock. The visions are accumulating and layering on top of one another. I can't fight my compulsion to eat, but I'm trying to eat as little as possible of the food served here. The day has been a continual replay of the cat's brain seeping out of its ear, the bees being devoured by a holocaustic army of scorpions and Nurse Peacock's technicolored eyes. And, of course, Rosie's dead body. Mouth agape, finished off in that hospital bed. The images relay in my head and overlap in the loop. I take a shower that evening. And as I slipped off my hospital whites and hang them up, I noticed the hellfire red of my arm. The pockmarks are now bulbous blisters, and the tiger tattoo has been completely mutilated. An ugly whirl of black on orange is splattered across my arm. The bright strobe of those two eyes were shining green through the shower's glass door. Nurse Peacock is standing outside of the communal showers, peering at me from the hallway. I've planned my escape. I won't discharge from this place. I'm going to flee. They can keep their $10,000. I've seen enough. I'll sneak out in the middle of the night. I've already calculated where the fire doors are and that they can be pushed open. I saw Dr. Jurgen do it. He walked out onto the roof for a cigarette. On the roof, there's an emergency fire point with a ladder for the fire marshal access. From the roof, I can lower myself back onto the street and make my way home. I remember the ladder from the first day's fire safety training. I've made a point of not sleeping all night. I've stayed awake by drinking copious amounts of the free coffee and avoiding eating dinner. I had a couple of theatrical bites for the sake of Nurse Peacock. My empty stomach will ensure I stay up easily enough. If I sleep through the night and don't wake up, I'll miss my opportunity. If the heavy lucid dreams conquer me, I won't wake up at the perfect time and I'll have to stay here longer. I don't know how much the flashing eyes have seen or sensed already about my impending escape. I don't suspect I'd last another day here. I look at Kenneth, fast asleep, 
His eyes are so tightly closed, it looks like he's straining to keep them closed against an ecliptic sunrise. Almost like he's trying to stave off blindness. His fat gut pokes through his gown. His bed sheets and quilt are soaked through and cling against his body. He looks so much worse than the first day I saw him. We all do. I've decided to give him a chance to escape. I pull back Kenneth's sheets from over him. I feel the wet soak against my palm. He resists and pulls the sheets back towards him, but my grip is too strong on him. He's half asleep and straining to keep hold of this soggy quilt. I tell him I'm leaving. I plead with him to come with me. I warn him about this place, about the dreams, about the food, about Rosie. He kicks me away with his feet and pulls the sheet back over him. He'll probably think this is a dream in the morning. I don't care about Kenneth enough to argue or fight to save his life. I tried. I put my backpack on and changed out of the whites I had been condemned to for three weeks. Wearing jeans for the first time feels like a fresh release from the drabness of uniformity I had not been subjected to since secondary school. The jeans and t-shirt changed something within me. A freedom. A return to humanity. I'm out in the hallway and quietly walking towards the staircase. As I glide myself to within touching distance of the fire exit, I feel a gentle tug on my arm just as I'm going to push the emergency bar. It's Nurse Fillmore. Shh, you'll set the fire alarms off, she says. What are you doing? I ask. I'm on night shift, and you're escaping, she says. Escaping? I'm a volunteer. You're escaping, she says. I don't want to be in this loony bin anymore. This fire door is alarmed. If you open it, you'll wake up the entire clinic. Well, I'll just open it and go out of it anyway. Let the alarm sound. And then you're in for it, she says. I can't believe this. I'm 30 minutes from my fucking house in a voluntary clinic and you're telling me I can't leave? It's not just you. I want to leave. Nobody leaves. This isn't legal, I say. This is the clinic. You don't just leave. How do I get out of here? You can't escape, and I can help you. She extends an arm out toward me. I'm following Nurse Fillmore down the staircase into pitch black. She tells me that the best route of escape is through the basement. I try to ask her about this place, what she knows, why she's helping me, how it came to be, but she's frantic and too cautious of noise to better explain. She's pacing in a near sprint, and despite her 50 extra pounds, her additional age and lack of mobility, I'm struggling to keep up. When I leave this place, I'm writing to every newspaper in the country. I'm finding out exactly what goes on at this clinic. Down here, she says, standing by a doorway. It's a caretaker's closet, or maybe a basement entrance. The door being older and more worn out, and of different coloring than every other door we passed. 
I've run through every staff-only sign in the clinic, and I'm down into parts I've never expected to witness. She stands before the basement door. This fifty-something-year-old woman flaming with theatrics, really putting on a show of suspense for me. She puts her finger to her lips and throws the door open. Nurse Fillmore steps forward. I step behind her. I'm not where I should be. The domicile of my soul is strapped down on one side of the room, and I am on the other side. I'm watching, though. I see every detail. I've never seen so clearly before in all my life. I can see the viscera of my remains. I can see the flesh peeled off and thrown into chunks onto the floor. I see a cadaver placed strategically next to me. All different body parts mashed together on top. A poorly made casserole of meat and flesh. I see myself upright and strapped into a hospital stretcher. I can see the contents of my stomach dripping onto the hardwood floor and a small tray laid out to collect the blood and doing a shit job of it. I can see the swarm of bees being devoured by the army of scorpions and it is all taking place from within myself. I am housing the massacre once again. I see Rosie in the far corner. Her scrappy remains are piled on top of one another like a bag of bones. I see Kenneth. His brain is seeping out of his ear, and his skull is crushed and crinkled up, looking like a discarded crisp packet. I just barely made it out his fat mouth and beady eyes. I see the beige wood rotting on the walls surrounding us. The smell of damp mold in this dark and decaying basement. I see the nurses, all of them. There's Wimslow, Fallon, Flynn, Fillmore, and Peacock, and about 18 others whose names I never got. I see Dr. Jurgen with his clipboard and pen. Nurse Peacock stands tallest. Her eyes are now glowing a shade of blood red, and she's walking towards me. But not the me that's all carved up in the corner being eaten by insects. She's approaching the me that's narrating this. The me that you're speaking to right now. Nurse Peacock confidently struts over in long catwalk strides. She raises her palm and extends her hand out towards me generously. She's waiting for me to accept. Accept that I can't accept because I don't have palms or hands. They're on the cadaver or they're strapped in with the rest of me. She smiles and her eyes glow all the lovely shades of orange and red you'd expect to see from an orange grove. The strobes have dimmed out now. She points to the mutilated and savaged remains that she's no doubt enjoyed slicing. She mouths the word $10,000 in mocking revulsion. And then she...
And who'd expect shenanigans like that from the upstanding pharmaceutical industry? Well, that was clinical by author Kieran F. West. A little room for interpretation at the end there, huh? I've got my own ideas what happened to Jimmy. I mean, who among us hasn't come to with some crazy checkpoint and a knife at you? That's usually March 18th. A little about the author. Kieran F. West is a short story writer from London, England, who enjoys hard rock and surrealist horror. His inspirations are Jack Ketchum, Ira Levin, and Stephen King. He's currently working on his first novel. You can read more of his short stories on his website, www.flashfear.com. Thanks, Kieran. And remember, we are accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get 1.3 rubles per word. Hang on to them. Might be worth something one day. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. Grab a few more if you're Irish. It's your birthright, you know. Just watch your step out on the duckboards there. I think Chester's got a few in them, too. I'd like to recognize a couple of our YouTube listeners from different walks of life this week. Old Sebastian an Argentinian window washer and all-around nice fella. And then there's Michelle, a part-time painter of segmented nature scenes and full-time lovely lady. So, guys and gals, may the wind blow gently on your bosun's chair, and may the road rise up to meet you. Thanks for listening, and in the words of the sainted Maywin Sakat, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Good night, y'all. Now, where's that bottle? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.